significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 61, Price of Ellen White and Bacon. Last time, we talked about how fundamentalism radicalized Adventists when it came to the movies, Bible translations, and women. Anyways, Adventists had always been cautious about theaters, for instance, but when the church voted in the 1920s, that if someone frequented a theater, they should be kicked out of the church. And women also were slowly weeded out of positions of leadership. That, that kind of stuff. Now, today, we move on to talk about Price of Ellen White and Bacon. I feel like I lured you here under false pretenses. Bacon pretenses. Eh, it was almost clever. Anyways, let's talk about the evolution of evolution. You could have guessed that Avenus were always uh, against the idea of evolution. Surprise! What a lot of people don't realize, however, is that many evangelical Christians, especially Calvinists, were generally open to some kind of evolution, even if they disagreed with Darwin's details. Now, anyone paying attention to the scientific conversation for the past 20 years was already familiar with the basic idea of evolution. Everyone knew that you could selectively breed your animals to produce offspring that were healthier, faster, or stronger. Everyone could accept the basic idea of evolution. In fact, I don't know anybody who denies that species can can change, right? Like a lot of creationists like to call it uh, microevolution rather than macroevolution, okay? Like, a lot, of, a lot of Christians accept that. That's not disputable. Now, as the emerging scientific community began whispering about evolution during the 1840s and 1850s, Christians in the ivory tower of Princeton University were standing guard to protect them. One of those Princeton tower guards fired arrows at an early English evolutionist in 1840. 45, shortly after our William Miller story. On another occasion, a Princeton guard turned around and backhanded a young earth creationist, arguing that the days of creation don't have to be interpreted literally as 24-hour periods. Now, the Princetonians saw themselves as kind of refereeing America's spiritual landscape. They were getting down on some of these uppity evolutionists who were claiming perhaps a bit too much in the way of naturalism, and they would also get down on some young earth creationist Christians for being a little too literal. So they kind of saw themselves as keeping both sides in line. Now, some people tell the history of evolution and evangelicals this way. In the beginning, evangelical America largely shrugged at the idea of God and that he could create through evolution. Didn't impact the Bible at all. They didn't really care. Then fundamentalists came and required people to believe in six 24-hour periods of creation. And we are only now seeing evangelicals slowly beginning to embrace evolution again. In other words, people tell this story as if fundamentalism was an interruption on the path for all Christians to embrace some kind of, some kind of evolution. All right, so fundamentalism ends up being the bad guy. 
And can I just say in, in the most articulate way possible, that's a bunch of hooey. It is true that many conservative Christians in the 1800s, like those at Princeton, many of those at Princeton, had no problem interpreting Genesis 1 as, as being long ages. Okay, You even later on would have some theistic evolutionists. But we also have to understand that a lot of this early acceptance of evolution was done in a fog of what evolution was implying. There was no coherent scientific hypothesis to critique. It was a bunch of scientists trying out different ideas, few of which were solid enough to directly challenge Christendom, to directly challenge Protestant Christianity. So, so long as the Princetonians and other Christians in positions of influence felt unchallenged, they could afford to be generous and open-minded. I mean, this that's just human nature. Okay, no one understands the shape of the thing they were dealing with until decades later. And this is, was because a thread of Christianity ran through society. After all, Darwin was originally intended for the ministry. He even wrote a defense of Christian missionaries at one point and believed it was perfectly fine to be a Christian and an evolutionist. He didn't see an inherent conflict there, even if he himself would eventually give up his faith. Some evolutionists, like Thomas Huxley, railed against the church, but most didn't. Some even defended the church. The implications of evolution just weren't clear. Was this thing going to be a threat to Christianity or not? Was it a passing fad or was it just completely harmless? It wasn't easy to tell where this evolution thing was going. Now, in the eyes of of prominent Christians. I mean, who who even was this Darwin guy anyway, especially in England? We've got our hands full with German theological liberalism over here. Okay, so Darwin, just sit in the back of the bus. We'll get to you later. What's more, most Christians didn't seem to understand what Darwin was saying. Now, the more scientific-minded Christians did, but in popular Christian circles, Darwin's natural selection was often misunderstood and misrepresented. A year after Darwin's On the Origin of the Species was published in America, Adventists began responding. Like many non-scientific Christians, Adventists didn't grasp what Darwin meant by natural selection. Adventists saw natural selection as a, a part of a, a growing scientific conspiracy to use the word nature to replace God. So God isn't selecting animals to thrive. Nature is. We're not talking about God's laws. We're talking about nature's laws. And Adventists found it absurd that nature could select anything. I mean, nature lacks a mind. It lacks a will. What ridiculous lengths will people go to to write God out of the human story? To quote an article in the review, quote, So of the new phrase which Darwin has invented, natural selection, as though nature selected such individuals and species and rejected the rest, nature makes no such selection. The phrase is an absurdity, end quote. Of course, that's not what Darwin meant by natural selection at all. Natural selection wasn't nature is selecting, but that the selection happened naturally, in contrast to artificial selection, which is what happens when a shepherd puts two prized sheep 
in the pen together and lights some candles, plays a little Lion King soundtrack, okay? That didn't happen naturally. It happened artificially. So Darwin's basic point was the stuff you do with breeding your sheep happens in nature as a whole, though less efficiently, okay? It happens naturally. The strong rams fight. I'm just making this up. I don't know anything about rams, okay? But but you understand what I'm saying. The strong rams fight, and, and the stronger of the two is the one who breeds with whatever female he wants. You know, and, and this is kind of the natural way by which um, superior genes find each other and make superior offspring, that, that kind of stuff. Anyways, so Avin has also failed to understand the type of science being done. Now, let me read you, let me read to you from an article by George Marsden called Fundamentalism as an American Phenomenon. He's contrasting the American Christian reaction to modernism with the British Christian reaction to modernism. And this misunderstanding of the type of science being done pervades the American Christian reaction to evolution. So let me quote Marsden here. Quote, The fundamentalist response to Darwinism was an objection rather to a type of science, a developmental type, which they almost always branded as unscientific. End quote. Now you'll see this over and over and over again in Adventist writings, that evolution is unscientific. And I could repeat this until I'm blue in the face, not just in Adventist writings. Okay, Adventists were, were very much on board with many other Christians in doing this. Okay, they didn't conceive of the situation as a war between religion and science, but of true science versus false science. So one, one fundamentalist would write, quote, It is not science that Orthodox Christians oppose. No, no, a thousand times no. They are opposed only to the theory of evolution, which has not yet been proved, and therefore is not to be called by the sacred name of science, end quote. And this is where we get to talk about Francis Bacon. Now, when I become a millionaire, I'm going to make a James Bond spinoff about Francis Bacon. The name is Bacon. Francis Bacon. Fried, not baked. Anyways, whatever. Francis Bacon lived in the 1600s, and he gave the world his own scientific method. Bacon's idea was that humanity will progress by the careful observation and collection of data from our experiences. None of this, well, it must be true because Aristotle said it was. We have to focus on what's in front of us and be careful not to leap to distant conclusions. Bacon's scientific method was therefore limited to the things we could observe and touch and see. This was totally cool because it meant that metaphysical or spiritual things were outside the sovereignty of Bacon's science. And this is why Adventists and others accused Darwin of doing false science. Darwin's science wasn't staying within its lane. Or to quote one author in the review, quote, I say that I have just as much right to criticize Huxley and Darwin when they travel out of the scientific into the religious and theological, or they, me, when I travel into the domain of their science. At other times, Avenus would say that these modern scientists can't, can't know because they weren't there at creation. I mean, because remember, Baconian science emphasizes that we can observe the world around us. How could you observe something that happened billions of years ago? So this isn't a battle between superstitious religious zealots and men of science. It is a battle between two different ideas of what science is and what science can do and where science should be operating and where it should not. 
One historian has said Americans largely missed the romantic period that bridged the gap between the Enlightenment and the modern world, and that's kind of what we, we see here. Many Americans didn't make that transition into the modern world that the, that the romantic period kind of provided, so they were, they were still stuck in the Enlightenment. I don't say stuck like it was a bad thing, but they were still there. They were still in that period, and they missed that kind of jump that other parts of the world had made. Okay, so, so this is what we have. We miss that romantic period. Many Americans are in this enlightenment frame of mind. The rest of the world, uh, developed world, is, is kind of traveling fast toward this modern world. And so we have this kind of conflict in America, not, again, not between religious people and, and, and science-minded people, but between the science of the enlightenment versus the science of the modern world. In other words, for a group of people who refused to eat pork, Adventists sure had swallowed a lot of bacon. And not just Adventists, some of the most educated people in American society resisted evolution because of Bacon's influence. I don't want you to think that Adventism's resistance to evolution is all because of their misunderstanding of Darwin and because of Bacon's influence. Adventists were actually ahead of other Christians in seeing the theological implications of evolution. And of course, if you don't think the world was created in six 24-hour periods, then upon what basis do you rest on the Sabbath day? Without the Sabbath, there are no Adventists, okay? So even if Adventists, like uh, most Christians, didn't understand the science, they nevertheless saw evolution as an existential threat to their theological identity. You couldn't be further apart from the meaning of evolution than Adventists were. And not just in theology. Adventists didn't have a well-defined theology of creation to, to start with. No, they, they, were just, they were different in other ways. For instance, evolution promised long periods of inevitable progress. It encouraged us to think in terms of millions and billions of years. Adventists were like, man, Jesus could come tomorrow. You need to be ready today. The world is not slowly improving. It's getting worse. The way evolutionists and Adventists looked at time couldn't be more different. Now, by the turn of the 20th century, the scientific world was fast coming to terms with evolution, especially Thomas Huxley's brand of agnosticism. Huxley was kind of, I'd just call him Darwin's bulldog. I don't mean that to diminish him, but he was just, a, he was just like a feisty defender of Darwin. And, uh, and, and he championed, he actually coined the word agnosticism as a way to describe his own views. And by the 20th century, by the turn of that century, uh, evolution was rapidly being accepted, and so along with it was Huxley's agnosticism. So the, the situation was ripe for someone, anyone, who was scientifically literate and could defend the Adventist position on scientific grounds. Now, my friends, it is time to talk a little more about George McCready Price. George McCready Price was born in the middle of nowhere in the province of New Brunswick in eastern Canada. Now, after Price's mother became an Adventist, he tagged along and joined her. He enrolled at Battle Creek College for two years until he ran out of money and couldn't keep going there, so... I think there's probably many Adventist students who can relate to him on that level. Anyways, then he went back to Canada as a principal of a small public school. 
And if you want to understand why Price would spend the next 60 years of his life doing war against evolution, you have to understand these years as a principal of a small high school in rural Canada. A local doctor, one of Price's few friends there, kept trying to convince Price of evolution and very nearly did it. I mean, Price was torn. He was teetering between his new Adventist faith and the evidence of evolution. He wavered, but each time he'd go back and read Ellen White, especially Patriarchs and Prophets. And so eventually he just he came down on the side of his Adventist faith and he took a stand. What kind of stand was it? I mean, Ellen White writing about a worldwide flood wasn't evidence his doctor friend was going to accept. Price had to prove it through other means. He had to do science. He had to justify his choosing the Adventist church over evolution. And so it became the project that defined the rest of his life. It's the, it's the kind of life only and almost evolutionist could have lived. Right? I mean, have you, have you met these guys? They were into something, and, and then they spend the rest of their life kind of r responding and, and, and exposing the dangers of the thing that they were into the thing that they were they were deeply tempted by i mean this is this is price he was he was so very nearly persuaded by evolution it, it pulled at him and so only someone who has felt the temptation only somebody who has felt the pull could really devote the rest of their lives to combating it to it's like a his study of creation was his means of resisting that attraction that temptation now, there was no geology program at an Adventist university, okay? When he was at Battle Creek, they did offer a, some kind of science, something or another, but he didn't take it. And by 1900, Battle Creek College was far more concerned with training missionaries than anything else. So Price educated himself when it came to science. His, his appetite for knowledge was insatiable, even if his career was unstable. And by that, I mean... He was briefly an evangelist in Prince Edward Island, briefly an academy principal in Oakland, briefly a construction worker in Maryland, briefly a writer in New York City, and briefly a handyman at Loma Linda Sanitarium. It was there as a handyman that he published his first book. And Loma Linda wasn't called Loma Linda back then. It was called the College of Medical Evangelists, but now it's Loma Linda University. Anyways, Loma Linda University upgraded him from handyman to professor, giving hope to university janitors ever since. Recognizing his passion for learning, the university awarded him a bachelor's degree. Now, Price is one of those people who professed not to put much stock in higher education. He, he claimed to be happy not having been infected by what he called university-itis. And said, common sense and a divine calling were more useful than a PhD. And yet, Price almost always added his degrees at the end of his name when he published things. Look, the truth was that Loma Linda awarded him a Bachelor of Arts, not a Bachelor of Science. And whatever Price would later say about university education, he had toyed with the idea of getting his MD at Loma Linda. He didn't, and he wondered for the rest of his life whether that was a good decision or not. So Price embodies, I believe, the, the struggle modern Christians feel living in the, in the modern world. There's that part of him that wanted to fit in, to get that doctorate, to go into the field, 
to fit in with the scientific establishment, to have that credibility, to have that education. And there was a part of him that just rebelled against all of that. I don't need their approval. I don't need a piece of paper from Harvard, for instance. Okay. Francis Bacon, by the way, had pioneered the idea of two books, scripture and nature. And, and this idea ripped apart the medieval notion that creation and creator had to be studied together. Ellen White, of course, adopted this two books view, but neither Bacon nor White understood how these books would come to represent two paths. To study nature, as evolutionists like Huxley did, increasingly meant rejecting God. And many of these Christians who studied God found themselves at odds with scientists, masters of the book of nature. And, and so this a defining characteristic of modern Christianity is ambivalence about this situation this divorce of God and nature. The modern Christian wants mom and dad to work things out and get back together. They insist that nature and God are not irreconcilable. Liberals might say that God and nature can be reconciled if only you drop a literal reading of Genesis 1. Conservatives might say that God and nature can be reconciled if you just drop this evolution stuff. But they both agree, okay? They understand the solution differently, but all modern Christians understand the problem the same way. We got to get mom and dad back together. This situation is not uh, tenable in the long run. Now, Price is one of those first Adventists who so perfectly embodies the modern Christian for us. Okay, he wants to fit in, he wants credibility, he wants to be accepted, and if not accepted, at least heard, at least respected by the scientific establishment. And he, and he will never get that. He will never get that, but he wants it, right? He wants to bridge the gap between the, the kind of um, the, the people studying the book of nature and the people studying the book of God. He, he wants to bridge that. He wants to bring them back together. And, he's, and so sometimes you'll read him say, I don't care about any of that. And sometimes you, you realize that he does care about it. And that's kind of, to me, that's what it means to be a modern Christian. I mean, you, you kind of go back and forth. You feel, you feel two different emotions about the same thing. That's what it means to live in, in this world where these, kind of, these two books have been put on opposite ends of the library. All we need is a scientifically-minded Christian. I'm speaking here as an Adventist right back in the day. All we need is a scientifically-minded Christian to beat the evolutionary science at its own game. And this is the hope that George McCready Price offered though he was self-taught i mean keep in mind right the earliest Adventist doctors were self-taught too okay so don't look down upon that though he was self-taught his specialty was geology price chose geology because he saw it as the weakest point in evolution and this characterizes price's approach by the way pretty much the approach of all the creation scientists uh, that i'm familiar with which is to say evolution cannot be true to poke holes and point out inconsistencies in evolution. It's like this zero-sum game. If I can prove evolution is not true, then creationism must be true because it's the only theory left standing. And that's okay because it's not the job of creation science to prove the flood or prove divine creation in, in any literal days, okay? This is taking us back to Bacon again. God's two books are separate. The best true science can do is clear the way of any naturalistic objections to God. And once all the objections are cleared away, you have no excuse but to embrace your creator. Now, Price makes this exact point over and over and over again. In one of his books, he writes, quote, In thus removing false ideas, it leaves the ground cleared 
for more correct ideas regarding creation, and thus for truer concepts of morality, end quote. This connection to Bacon, by the way, is no joke. Price actually dedicates one of his books to Bacon, and Isaac Newton too, by the way, whom Price considered to be true scientists. I want to get into some of Price's arguments, not too deeply, but just so you have a sense of the kind of things he was saying. But in order to do that, you really have to understand that his arguments were wrapped up, rooted, soaked in his fundamentalist worldview. If old earth creationists preferred not to see their contest with evolution as a war between religion and science, while Price, on the other hand, eagerly embraced the narrative of war. Price later called his first book, published in 1902, as the first fundamentalist book. Price was very much an early adopter. Okay, you have these people out there who are like the first ones on the train of some new trend. Like they, they somehow, they can see the signs. They can, they can kind of smell the flavors on the wind before anybody else can. And they just, they just jump into it. And we look at them and they're like, wow, they were just so ahead of their time. They were ahead of everything. Right? Price is just one of those people. Before anybody else really was able to kind of perceive the coming fundamentalist movement, Price was there. Okay, now it's only later on that he calls his his book the first fundamentalist book, right? Because the word fundamentalist didn't didn't exist when he published it, but but he has the tone, he has the mindset of fundamentalism long before. Uh, many of the people who would later be prominent fundamentalists ever did before they could even sniff this, the kind of uh, militancy that would come to define fundamentalism. Price had that. He had that early on. And this fundamentalist mindset is more than just rhetoric for him. I mean, it shapes the way he chooses his sources and frames his arguments. He considered earlier geologists like Charles Lyell to be what he called advance agents for Darwin and this, quote, modern troop playing at dethroning the creator, end quote. In other words, all of these scientists, whether geologists or biologists or whatever, who were, who were uh, complicit in building evolution, they were part of a conspiracy to destroy God or the sovereignty of God. Price's goal, he tells us, isn't to destroy evolution. He says you can't destroy something that, that never really was built to begin with. His goal isn't to destroy evolution, but to expose it. In his book, Illogical Geology, Price admits that it wasn't written to persuade scientists, but to people who feel, in Price's words, quote, there must be something wrong with the evolution theory, end quote. And I think that's a pretty good description of Price as well. It was somebody who felt there must be something wrong with the evolution theory, and he endeavored to figure out what that was. So Price's main argument through his writings was that this bias against the creator God was undermining the objectivity of modern science. Now, Price couldn't buy into the idea of the geologic column, that these uniform layers of rock found uh, the world over, that they could be dated back billions of years, okay, in the pre-Cambrian level, right, billions of years old. Price believed that the fossils in these rocks didn't feature early prototypes of modern life, but better versions of modern life. Price quotes a number of people who have found fossils of ferns 30 feet tall or a, a six-foot-long frog, not to mention larger human beings, 
So evolution would suggest that life is slowly adapting and improving in size and complexity that we've we got um, we got from a single celled organism to dinosaurs, for instance, or to human beings. And according to the Bible, however, Price would say people lived nearly 1,000 years, right, in the early chapters of Genesis, but lifespans quickly diminished after the flood. So, so for Price, he expects to find the opposite of what evolution expects to find. Price expects to find bigger and better versions of modern life, of the life we have now, in the fossils. Because clearly, if we used to live 1,000 years old, now we don't live 1,000 years old, we live a lot less then clearly human beings have declined. We've diminished through, through time. And so he expects to find like older, stronger, bigger versions of human beings than, than we have alive today because that would make sense. If they lived to be 1,000 years old, you'd expect them to be, I don't know, better in some way, right? Not just like us, or they wouldn't live so much longer than us. Now, in the spirit of the age, Price, like many people back then, offered $1,000 to anyone who could prove that one fossil was older than another. Okay, he thought the whole geologic column was a mess. Sometimes you'd find layers out of order and da-da-da-da-da. So it didn't, it didn't prove anything. You couldn't really tell, you know, according to Price, how old some fossils were versus other fossils. And he offered the money. Of course, he never had to pay up. I don't think anybody's ever had to pay up when they made offers like that. Anyways, Price's eventual fame and success isn't found in his science, but in his certainty. Price was a master at collecting statements and setting them before the reader in the clearest possible light. He really was. I mean, Ronald Number says that when Price was younger, he wanted to get into literature. He wanted to be a writer. And I, I think... Price's writing is really strong. He's a very clear thinker. He's a very confident thinker. He was adept at finding holes in arguments and exploiting it. It was his polemics, I would say, not his science that mattered to fundamentalists. And it was his polemics that prevented scientists from taking him seriously. Toward the end of Price's life, an interviewer asked him, why? He spent his entire adult life dealing with evolution and creation. Price responded, quote, I felt I had a call to do this work as direct a call as any man who has ever received to the ministry, end quote. In other words, Price felt that same call somebody feels to become a pastor or to be a missionary in some distant land. He's like that. I was, I was called in the same way. All stemming, no doubt, from that conversation he had with the doctor while he was a high school principal in the middle of nowhere in Canada. Now, next time, we're going to go deeper into Price's life. We're going to get into the debates. We're going to talk about this man in much greater detail. And it's worth doing so. Price needs to be understood by Adventists, he's, he's been largely forgotten. We're going to talk about why that is, right? He was a man, both modern scientists and, I should say, certain modern fundamentalists have tried very hard to forget. But Price is worth remembering. Remembering. 
This episode of the Avenue History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology, and non-GMO vegan eggs. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenue history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.